You are listening to the First Tech Podcast. These podcasts are designed for authorised financial advisors. If you are not an authorised financial advisor, it's important you understand the content of this podcast may be difficult to follow as it assumes you have the necessary training and qualifications to understand the concepts discussed. The information contained in this podcast is general information only and does not take into account any of your personal circumstances, needs or objectives. A common question we receive in relation to self-managed super funds is whether a fund can invest in a private unlisted company. And while the answer to this invariably is that it depends on the client's circumstances and how those circumstances interact with a number of superannuation investment rules, there is also a range of practical issues that should be taken into account prior to making any investment. My name is Craig Day, head of the First Tech team, and here to discuss this interesting SMSF issue is Alex Denham, one of my senior technical services analysts, and Tim Sanderson, senior technical services manager. G'day, guys. Hi, Craig. Hi how are we? Very yeah, well, thank well. you. Good, good, good. Now, um, over the years, we've had, uh, you know, we've had a lot of questions in relation to self-managed fund investing in private companies, so private unlisted companies specifically. So, which will, as we'll see, requires consideration of quite a lot of reasonably complex rules. But before we get into those, we're probably worthwhile understanding why people may want to invest their self-managed super fund into a privately held company, which I would imagine would come with some increased risk. So, Tim, what examples have you seen over your time? Yeah, look, there is a range of them, but probably the one that sticks in my head is um, it involved members already holding shares in a private company, SMSF members, that's in the process or going to list on the ASX in the near future, so it'll become a listed company. So it involved a large financial advice firm, um, not going to name it, which was going to list and look, a range of advisors held shares in that company prior to the listing. And so the members in that situation often wanted to try and see if they could transfer their private company shares into their SMSFs prior to that happening on the expectation that they're going to go up in value once they're listed so ideally, that gain would be in the SMSF and in the concessionally taxed super environment. Yeah, okay. Great example of why someone want, might want to transfer shares into their SMSF. Alex, how about you? Yeah, most of the ones I've seen have been around uh, company employees, often senior, senior level employees, directors, those sorts of um, employees being given an opportunity to buy into a business, to buy into the company and uh, and they see it has good prospects for future growth and returns, and so hoping to to use their SMSF funds to do that. Yeah, take advantage of it. Mm. Um, I suppose the one I I saw, and I remember this is quite a while ago. I actually went and looked it up because it was actually off the back of, and people may remember this TV show, the ABC New Inventors Program. And I did actually get a call one day from an advisor that uh, their client was the the parent of the person that won this award um, and I think it was the son was now going to set up a company to develop this product um, and was looking for investors and the parents wanted to throw some money in. I thought there was going to be some some good growth in this particular invention um, but their only available money to make that investment was all sitting inside a self-managed super fund. So could they actually invest the, the self-managed super funds funds into a company that was going to be owned and controlled mostly by by their son. So that was another example. Okay, so if we're going to 
if we're going to buy shares in a private company, what are the different things we need to think about? So, Alex, do you want to run through some of the rules that we need to take into account? Yeah, that's quite a broad range of, and, of rules. It's somewhat complex that you'd need to think about. And they're all as important as each other. You can't just sort of think, all right, well, I only worry about that part and the other ones don't matter. They all matter. And these mm-hmm. the, sort of the ones that matter the most include acquiring the assets from related parties. So who's, who's the fund actually buying the assets or the shares from and is it permitted to do so in the first place? We then have in-house asset rules and the 5% in-house asset limit. So that means if if the company is an in-house asset, and I'm assuming we'll go into that, uh, that's going to need to be tracked over time to ensure that the fund doesn't blow that 5% limit on 30 June or at acquisition. Uh, we have non-arm's length income rules, otherwise known as NALI. Um, so that can impact the tax of any dividend payments or future capital gains if the, if the investment isn't being maintained on an arm's length basis. And overarching everything is always the sole purpose test, which can be a little overlooked sometimes. And that means that it overlays all investment rules and looks at why is the fund entering into this investment in the first place. And important, it's really important to, that trustees consider that. Yeah, that's that's one where a lot of people, I think you're spot on there, that they kind of forget. They think, oh, well, we can do this because the acquisition of asset rules allows us to do it or the in-house asset rules allow us to do it. And they kind of think that, therefore, because it complies with those investment rules, therefore, it must meet the sole purpose test. And that is not the case. We do need to go back and look at the purpose around that investment uh, and make sure it's all about the provision of retirement benefits and not providing some sort of other current day benefit to to a member or some other, you know, related party. Okay, now before or rather than diving into each of these rules separately, because I I think we'd actually be here all day going through all those different rules, uh, what I thought we could do is go through a case study scenario and see how the rules would apply in that situation. So in this case, um, keep in mind that as we go through this podcast, um, there are other circumstances and other scenarios that could give a different outcome. And we have articles that I'll give you details on uh, at the end of the podcast that I would really suggest if you've got a client in one of these circumstances, you go and look at those articles, not just based off this podcast, because we could get a completely different answer just with a couple of small differences in the scenario. So in this case, the scenario is um, the client's self-managed fund wants to acquire shares in a private investment company, which holds a mix of assets, including property. So it might hold one or two properties, maybe residential or commercial, doesn't matter, uh, listed shares, as well as units in a private unit trust. And the current shareholders are as follows. So the client in their own name owns 55% of the units. Uh, We have an unrelated person, person A, that holds 20% of the units an unrelated person, person B, owning the remaining 25% of the shares. Now, did I say unrelated person A owning 20% of the units? I meant shares in that situation. Now, client wants to sell 10% of the shares in the company to his self-managed super fund. So to drop down from owning 55% to owning 45%, and then the SMSF would also be a 10% shareholder in this company. So the question here is, can they actually do this? So, Tim, what is the first thing we need to look at here? Yeah, so the very first thing to look at is who is the fund acquiring those shares from? Um, and that's important. We, we need to work out, are we acquiring it from a related party of the fund or not a related party of the fund? Because if it's a related party, then that's going to trigger a range of investment rules. 
So under the super rules, a related party of the fund is uh, a member of the fund, a standard employer sponsor of the fund, and what's known as a part eight associate of either of those two, a member or standard employer sponsor, is pretty simple in this situation because we've got the fund acquiring the shares from a member of the fund directly. Um, so it would be acquiring those shares from a related party of the fund. So, okay, given we are acquiring shares from the related party, I assume the acquisition of assets from related party rules are going to come into play, so the old Section 66. So how does that rule apply in this case? Yeah, so under Section 66, there's a general rule that says uh, a trustee is prohibited from intentionally acquiring an asset from a related party. Um, so on, on first look, this transaction would be prohibited under that rule. But it is important to, to know that there's a range of exemptions to that general rule. So for things like listed shares acquired at market value, business real property, um, an asset that is an in-house asset of the fund, um, as long as that acquisition doesn't result in the fund exceeding that 5% in-house asset limit. And also there's um, certain assets that, are, that would otherwise be in-house assets but are exempt, um, they can also be acquired in that situation. Okay, Alex, so here we know that the shares are not listed, so that exemption's simply just not going to fly. Mm -hmm. However, the exemption include an asset that would be an in-house asset acquired from a related party. So what's an in-house asset? Right, so an in-house asset of a fund is basically an asset that's a, that's a loan to or an investment in a related party of the fund. It also includes an investment in a related trust of the fund or an asset that's subject to a lease between the trustee and, and the related party of the fund. Now, Tim's already outlined that a related party includes a Part 8 associate of a member. And in this case, a Part 8 associate of a member includes a company where the company is sufficiently influenced by a member or an associate of a member, or a member or their associates hold a majority interest in the company. So in this case, is the company related party the SMSF? Yeah, sure is. So the member owns 55% of the shares and therefore it meets the definition of a related party. Um, and so as a result, that means obviously the shares therefore will be an in-house asset of the super fund or the SMSF if they were acquired by that fund. So given this, can the fund acquire the shares? Yep, so cycling back to what we were saying before, some mm -hmm. uh, exemptions to the acquisition of assets from, from related party rules is that in-house assets are an exception and therefore the fund can uh, acquire in-house assets. However, very importantly, it's, it must remember that there is the funds are subject to a 5% in-house asset limit. That is the, the, no more than 5% of the fund's assets can be invested in in-house assets both at the time of acquisition and at 30 June each year. So if the trustee is considering buying some uh, assets that would be in-house assets, it needs to know the market value of all the assets of the fund, as well as the market value of the shares that it's acquiring, and of course any other in-house assets it already owns. And once you know those things, you can determine if the acquisition is going to result in the fund owning more than or 5% or, or less of um, in-house assets. So and essentially what you're what you're saying there is that if this 10% of the company, if let's say that was, you know, 
hundred thousand dollars, and the company and the the SMSF was worth let's say a million dollars. Um, those shares would make up ten percent of the value of the fund, um, and therefore that's not going to fly because the acquisition would cause the fund in itself to breach the the five percent in house asset limit. Yep, exactly. So that would mean it's a it's a prohibited acquisition, and you're breaching the section sixty six that you guys have already mentioned. Yeah. So yeah, they would have okay. to rethink it and and either not do the acquisition or acquire less to keep it under five yeah. percent. Yeah. Now, Tim also mentioned an additional exemption for certain assets defined not to be an in-house asset. So mm-hmm. we've got assets and then assets that are an in-house asset are then defined not to be an in-house asset. Yeah. Um, that's also, that's great, isn't it? That, now, that exemption, could that apply in this situation? Well, we have to have a look at it. So, so what, is the, what assets are exempted from being in-house assets? Essentially, we're looking at a, a company or trust that is a related entity to the to the fund. However, if it complies with certain requirements, it's then excluded from being an in-house asset. Now, these requirements are set out in CISREG 1322C. So many people have heard of these things. They're called 1322C trusts or companies, otherwise often known as ungeared unit trusts and companies. So they're, they're called these things because they meet this a list of requirements that are, list, that are um, listed out in CISREGS 1322C. Now, in this, a couple of the important uh, requirements of the, in that reg is, one, they have no borrowings, and two, they can't hold any investments in other entities. Now, Craig, when you sort of introduced the case study here, you did say that the, that the company owns some listed shares, and I think you even said investments in private unit trusts. And so that means that this company is holding investments in other entities. It does not meet the requirements of 1322C. So it's not a 1322C company, therefore uh, not excluded from being an in-house asset. So that exemption is simply just not going to work? Yeah, exactly. So if if anyone wanting to read more information around 1322C companies and trusts, we do have a chapter on it in our First Tech SMSF guide. Um, or, of course, contact the First Tech team. We can talk through it. All right. So if we're relying on the in-house asset exemption, so this thing is an in-house asset, so the shares we know, the shares are in a related company, so therefore the shares would be an investment in a related entity, so therefore the shares are going to be in-house assets themselves. Mm -hmm. So I think you said it before, I obviously need to worry about it at the time of acquisition, but do I need to worry about it other times as well, that 5%? Yeah, you absolutely do. And so it's, but the only other times is 30 June. So it's one day a year that the 5% needs to be, is measured. Okay. And that's in the 30 June financials. And so the, the value of the fund in-house assets need to be under 5% every 30 June. Yeah. So the way I've the way I've always kind of thought about that is because sometimes I get a question: why why do the why do we have to come back and measure it? And it all comes back to I think the in house asset rules. What they're essentially saying here is: yes, you can go and invest into one of these private related companies or trusts, but with that fact that it's related brings risk because that fund might be investing into that private company or trust for other reasons that aren't purely about retirement, right? Um, so therefore, while we'll allow it, what we don't want is this being a material risk to the fund. So what we're going to do is just limit it to no more than 5% of the value of the fund, obviously on acquisition, but also they don't want those the value of those shares creeping up over time and therefore, you know, 5, 10 years down the track, making up 10, 15, 20% of the value of the fund. So they're essentially saying 
No, you have to track them every 30 June. So what happens if I go over on 30 June? So I do the, the books at the end of the year, do the valuations, do the accounts, and my shares in this particular company show up as now making up 7% of the total value because you know these shares have increased in value relative to all the other assets of the fund. What happens in that situation? Yeah, so basically what actually does surprise some trustees and advisors is it's not a sudden death test. So if a fund assets exceed 5% on 30 June, the, the fund doesn't have to get rid of them at that point, okay? They don't have to sell down or anything like that. The trustee then is required to make a plan and execute the plan to sell down or remove those in-house assets um, by 30 June of the following year. Okay, so they do have 12 months leeway there to fix the problem. Uh, if after that, if the following 30 June, the level is still over 5%, they haven't carried out the plan to reduce it, that is, it's at that point that the fund has a breach of your 5% yeah. house asset level. So that's an important yeah. um, thing to remember. Yeah, that is actually, you're spot on there because we do get some people call up and say, oh, my fund's breached because of my client's fund's breached because they're over 7% or over 5%, sorry, yeah. say over yeah. 5 over 7 They're 7%, which is over 5%. That's fine, right? That's yeah, You don't exactly. have to worry at that situation, but you must identify the amount of the excess. So in this case, if this was this particular company, how many shares are now causing me to be over 5% and I must dispose of those shares by the end of the following financial year. Now, sometimes you get people asking, well, what if that's because of a market jumping around, a bit of volatility, and the value of all the listed shares has gone down? Can can we just wait for the value of those listed shares to come back up? And the answer is no. Mm. Once you've got that excess on 30 June, the rules require you to identify the excess and sell those assets down by the end of the following financial year. So yeah, it's right. it's that one-day test, you're over, you've now got to sell, okay? Yeah. Um, so in that situation, um, obviously we re we need to retest. Okay, so Tim, knowing the value of the shares will become obviously really important as it's going to be critical to determining whether the acquisition is actually permitted and also whether the fund will be required to divest in future if it's going to be an in-house asset. So how do we go about valuing private company shares? Yeah, so the ATO has issued valuation guidelines for a range of assets, including these sorts of scenarios. And in this case, they say um, a couple of factors need should be taken into consideration, including things like the value, market value of assets in the private company and also the amount that's been paid by the SMSF to acquire the shares. And in terms of evidence to support that valuation, the ATO talks about things like ideally an independent expert valuation of the assets, um, a property valuation if there's direct property in there, and also potentially the date and price of the most recent unrelated sale and purchase of a share in that company. Where there isn't going to be independent valuation, um, the ATO has talked about needing evidence of by the trustee of what methods being used to conduct that valuation and how that market valuation that's been arrived at was substantiated by the trustees, including any you know, objective data that they've relied on to, to come to that valuation. Um, it's also worth noting there that um, in, in a lot of cases, simply looking at the financial statements of that private company is not going to be sufficient to be relied on for market valuation. Because in a lot of cases, those financial statements would be based on the, you know, the cost 
valuation of those assets. Um, even though independent valuation is may not be mandatory, and it's only going to be mandatory in very limited situations, the ATO does say it should be considered if because of the type of asset that valuation is likely to be complex or difficult. And I think at least some private companies are going to fall into that category. Um, for example, if, if it's running a business, if it hasn't been valuing assets at market value in, in its financial statements. Um, and also independent valuation is also going to be a sensible way in a lot of cases of minimising the risk of getting things wrong. Yeah, uh, I think you're spot on there. So, uh, you know, I had a colleague or a friend a while ago that was running their own, you know, running their own business through a company structure and they decided to sell up. And, and the process for them to actually determine a value for the shares that they were going to sell off or sell out to, to these other investors was actually really, really complicated. It, it took months to determine the value. Um, so I think that's a, a really important issue to to take into account as well there, that if we are buying or investing a self-managed fund into a, a private business and that is actually conducting a business, then the valuation of those shares could be really, really complicated. And, and think about that there. It's not only on the acquisition that, that that valuation is important. It's also important every 30 June. That could be for in-house asset purposes or it could also just be for doing the fund's financial statement. So yeah. if you're buying into one of these structures, you know, um, it's going to be, you know, this valuation is going to be a really important practical issue. So the shares are hard to value and the order is likely to want an independent valuation, mm. then that sounds like it's going to be an expensive and complex and potentially unviable process from an investment perspective. Would you agree? Yeah, I'd agree. Um, and look, many auditors are likely to be much more comfortable with an independent valuation. Um, you, you're likely to get much less questions um, if you go to the auditor with that independent valuation. Um, and look, potentially in the future, we talked about on acquisition and at 30 June each year, potentially we might even have to value, uh, get that valuation on the private company um, at other times as well. So if mid-year we're going to pay a lump sum benefit during a financial year, uh, yeah. potentially yeah. we're going to have to get a valuation at that point in time as well. Yeah, so do you really want to do this? Okay, um, moving on from valuations, what else do we need to think about here? Yeah, look, I think a very important consideration is also going to be the non-arms length income rules for tax purposes. So under these rules, um, any dividends paid from a private company are assumed to be non-arms length income. And that is, that's important because it's taxed at 45% rather than the normal 15% super tax rate. Um, unless that amount is consistent with an arm's length dealing. Okay, so obviously the million dollar question, when is an amount consistent with an arm's length dealing? <laughs> yeah, so the, the ATO looked at this back in, uh, I think it was tax ruling 2006-7 and said that private company dividends will be derived on an arm's length basis where the shares have been acquired and the investment has been maintained and the dividends are being paid on an arm's length basis. So all of those things really need to apply. So, for example, it's going to be critical to ensure, in order to meet that, that the fund acquired its 10% shareholding, in this case, on arm's length commercial terms and not for no consideration or for you know lower than market value consideration. It's going to be important to ensure the SMSF receives all future dividends in proportion to its shareholding 
So it doesn't receive a level of dividend that's going to be greater than what it should receive based on that 10% shareholding. Um, otherwise, if those two things don't apply, then potentially the dividends and potentially any future capital gains on the sale of those shares would be uh, gnarly and subject to that 45% rate potentially. Yeah, I always think about the non-arms linked income rules. Is what they're essentially just saying here is that if you've got a concessionally tacked environment such that superannuation is, what they don't want to see is people artificially diverting income that should have been taxed at the corporate tax rate or by at individual marginal tax rates, artificially diverting that off into a self-managed super fund where it's potentially only going to be taxed at 15% or 10% of its capital gain. So what they're essentially saying here is if you try and enter into one of these artificially contrived arrangements, let's say you you give 10% of the shares to your self-managed super fund, now that's not – you can do an in-specie contribution and then the, that that is on an arm's length basis because you can show there that the value of the shares – well, the value of the member's interest has gone up by the market value of those shares, so that's fine. But you can't just give shares for no consideration whatsoever to a self-managed super fund and then them derive dividends from that shareholding because obviously they haven't paid for the shares, therefore the dividends they're receiving is not consistent with an arm's length dealing, so therefore straight away all of those shares are going to be taxed at 45%. Also, if you ever sold those shares, um, the capital gain, because you didn't pay market rate for them, the capital gain is going to be exaggerated. So therefore, once again, those that capital gain in future is going to be taxed at 45%, right? So really, really, really important um, to make sure that we get the proper valuation of the shares um, and we can demonstrate that the dividends that we're receiving are being received on an arm's length basis. And that way, avoid that, that penalty, uh, non-arm's length income tax. Um, yeah. Okay, moving. Sorry. Okay, sorry. Yeah. Um, no, go on. Okay, that's often a, um, a sticking point where it's employees being offered shares in a company because often they're being uh, offered those shares at a discount to market value. Yeah. And so that's what, um, um, you know, often have the conversation where they hadn't realised that that's the problem that's going to present. Yeah, and that, that's that's also a problem there when you think about it because if, if that company – is not a related entity of the self-managed super fund and it's not listed, then straight away that that's going to cause you a problem because then we would be what the ATO says if, if it's an employee share scheme or something along those lines, mm. um, then the shares actually belong to the employee. We're not acquiring those shares directly from the, the company. Um, we're only being offered these shares because the member of the fund is an employee. So therefore, the ATO looks at that to say you're actually acquiring those shares from the employee. So if those shares were not in a listed entity and they're not a related company or trust, which they may not be in this situation, um, that would actually be a prohibited acquisition. So it does actually get quite complicated on that side as well. Um, now, Alex, sole purpose. Yes. Talked about, we talked about this before. Obviously, that needs to be considered. Always to be considered. It's very easy to get caught up in the excitement of a sexy strategy and forget about the reasons why it's being done. Um, and so, very importantly, what is the sole purpose test? It requires that all fund investments are made and maintained for the sole purpose of providing retirement or death benefits. And the fund assets can't be used in a way that provides a current day benefit to a member or other related party. 
So they, or, or trustees, SMSF trustees always need to keep their eye on this sole purpose test and ask themselves why they're actually wanting to buy these shares in the first place. So, for example, very simply in this, in our case study, the member's selling his shares to the SMSF. Why is he doing that? Um, is it actually because the member is, has a cash flow problem? And, um, and so therefore wants to sort of get, extract some cash out of his self-managed super fund. So whilst all the transactions might be legal and everything like that, if an objective obsess- assessment of all the facts and circumstances around it then indicated that in fact the actual reason for the acquisition was to get cash out of the super, then you've got a sole purpose test problem there. Yeah, that is a massive trap. We see it so often that people will just assume that because the transaction meets up with all, you know, complies with all the investment rules, therefore it must be okay under the sole purpose test. And and that is not the case at all. In fact, there is a good example of that is a recent um, administrative appeals tribunal. And what this related to was the ATO making a self-managed super fund non-complying because it acquired some listed shares from a related entity, which was a, a related family trust, I think it was, um, at market value. And you look at that and go, hang on, a self-managed fund is allowed to acquire listed shares from a related entity at market value. So what was the problem here? And it's you kind of can't, you're just dealing with a case, but reading between the lines, I think what was happening within the family trust was it had realised a very large capital gain somewhere else and it was now selling these other shares into the self-managed super fund um, at market value, but that was going to be a loss, and therefore it was going to offset the gains from the family trust. And I think what the ATO was saying there was, well, actually the reason why you sold those shares into your self-managed super fund was for a tax purpose over in this other entity, not because it was all about retirement. And that went into the uh, Administrative Appeals Tribunal and the Administrative Appeals Tribunal actually upheld the ATO position in that situation, said, yes, that's a breach of sole purpose. So that's a great example of how uh, an investment that is perfectly fine from an investment perspective can breach the sole purpose. It does need to be all about retirement and there can't be some other um, current day or parallel purpose in, in terms of investing into that company or trust, as, as we've said here. Um, anything else we need to consider? Uh, yes, always, as usual, check the trust deed, make sure it's an allow- allowable investment. Most modern trust deeds, of course, would have the flexibility to have this type of investment, but there's still some old trustees out there, that trustees mm-hmm. that may need to be upgraded uh, to, to allow the investment in. And as ever, check the investment strategy. And if it needs to be uh, updated as well or amended to include this investment, then trustees need, must make sure they do that. Yeah. In, in fact, in, in that case I was just talking about, that was another issue that the, the ATO picked up to say, well, your investment strategy didn't allow you to, to, to invest in those shares or it was a breach of the fund investment strategy because it's going to push you outside your, your asset weighting. So, yeah, yes, absolutely. They've, they've cracked down of, a bit on it in the last few years, haven't they, the ATO yeah. investment well, strategies? Absolutely. A lot of people kind of take it for granted, but it is a very, very important document. Um, okay, thanks. That that pretty much sums it up. Now, obviously, we've only looked at one scenario here and that a slightly different set of circumstances could have resulted in a different outcome. So it was the purpose was this to look at one scenario and see how the rules apply to it. Now, if you want to know more or you have clients in a slightly different set of circumstances, we have two articles 
looking at this, uh, specifically self-managed funds investing into private companies. One where the private company is a related party, very much like what we've just gone through, as well as one where the private company is not a related party, so a different set of rules and things to think about. So if you want to go and check out, you know, if you've got a client in that situation, give us a call or go and check out one of those articles on our website. Other than that, thanks, guys. Pleasure. Thanks, 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 Craig. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening to the First Tech Podcast. Please note these podcasts are designed for authorised financial advisors as a source of general information. All scenarios considered during this podcast were purely hypothetical and for illustrative purposes only and do not constitute a recommendation to purchase, hold or sell any financial products or take any other course of action. You should read the relevant product disclosure statement before making any investment decisions and once again consider talking to a financial advisor. While all care has been taken in preparation of this podcast using sources we believe to be accurate and reliable, No person, including Colonial First Aid Investments Limited, accepts responsibility for any loss suffered by any person arising from reliance on this information.